how do you get out of whatever you would describe it as then when you talk about the, the human well, element? to play better, you know, and uh, some people that uh, are getting an opportunity have to take advantage of it. You know, pitchers, position players, and, you know, guys like Lindor, they're doing what they can do. You know, we, we tie that game up there in the sixth, but, you know, got some uh, pitching issues. You know, Pete gave us what he could. You know, he bent, but we had a couple of double plays that we weren't able to turn. And testament to them, foot speed. So, you know, no, we're just not pitching very well and not scoring many runs. It's a bad combination. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, August the 6th, 2023. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at MikeSilvaMedia and you can show an Apple podcast, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G. Mike Silvat, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. You could also get me on Instagram, TalkingMetsNoG. And I want to welcome in the good folks from the fan-sided podcasting network as well as RisingApple.com. Welcome to another edition of the show. I think everybody's had a chance to decompress from the trade deadline. A very emotional five days as the Mets, under the direction of Steve Cohen and Billy Epler, ripped the team apart, trading away two future Hall of Famers a really top closer, and you can tell just from the comments, and we didn't really get too much into this on our last program, that it deflated this team in a big way, understandable. And I'm talking about the guys who are left that you would think are going to be part of the solution going forward, the Pete Alonzos, the Brandon Nimmo's. And what you have is probably unprecedented for the first time in a really long time. I mean, the Mets have been out of it. They've had bad seasons. But like I had said on the the program earlier in the week, 2017, 2018, you never felt that they were taking a step back to rebuild. You felt they were pausing and, well, they'll get these pitchers back next year or they'll reload with this and that and they'll be right in the mix next year. And, And right now, you know, despite the fact that Steve Cohen wrote an apology letter out to all the season ticket holders, I think there's a lot of uncertainty around this ball club. And the theme of this show, as we pick up the pieces from the deadline, is really looking at baseball in this town, because baseball in this town is good when both teams are playing at a high level. And I know you're rolling your eyes. I know that a lot of people listening to this show, what they want is 1986, 1987, 1988. Mets are on the top. The Yankees are a dysfunctional mess. But in reality, and I... I've talked about this before, and we'll get into this a little bit today because I have a really cool guest, someone who recently wrote a book, Road to Nowhere, the early 1990s collapse and rebuild of New York City baseball. Chris Donnelly will be joining me. And it's really a, a segment that I've been planning on ha- I'm doing for a while. We like having these segments with authors and things like that. But with, as Mets fans, you listening to the show, with the season over, 
and the specter of the next six, seven weeks of watching the kind of baseball that you saw in Kansas City, the kind of baseball you saw in Baltimore, which is extended spring training. I mean, what you're seeing now is what you would have expected to see in March. The kind of lineups, the the lack of energy. You know, you might as well replace Camden Yards and Kauffman Stadium for Port St. Lucie. I mean, that's really where it's at. So uh, I was planning on doing this segment, but now it's appropriate because I think after the deadline with the lack of activity that the Yankees presented to the public, with their desire to stay under the luxury tax, which is driving Yankees fans nuts, with Steve Cohen saying, hey, I spent a bazillion dollars. This isn't going anywhere. I'm going to take my assets. I'm going to retreat, come back to fight another day, try to get what I can get, not only you know, try to get what he could get, but pay down a significant portion to get the best prospects out there, basically trying to buy a farm system. And I haven't even got into the rankings and who's number one, who's number two, where does the public, you know, where does the media think, those in independent media, those in the mainstream media, where do they rank the Mets farm team? I don't care about that. I don't get too much into that. It'll be interesting to see. But I think more appropriate is the question, are we headed to, for the first time, since 1997 to a depressed era of New York baseball. Now, I know since 1997, the Mets have had their down periods. You guys remember 03, 04, obviously 2009, 10, you know, 11, 12, 13 with, you know, the Mets on the rebuild. And all throughout those times, even though the Mets were going through issues, the Yankees were a constant. They had the core four. They had Jeter. They had Posada. They had Pettit. They had Rivera, core five when Bernie Williams was there. They seemed to be going for it every year. Even when the Yankees retreated in 2015 and 2016, when they traded away Andrew Miller and Aroldis Chapman, the Mets were obviously playoff bound. They still were in the thick of things. It wasn't presented as a rebuild. And the Yankees are in the thick of things. You know, they are they are in a wild card race. The Mets are not. But as you listen to Steve Cohen, and there's a lot of things he has to prove, you know, what a competitive team means in 2024, we don't know. For the first time in the short tenure of Mets ownership, we don't know what Steve Cohen is going to be up to. And what I think scares some people is that what you saw taking two Hall of Fame pitchers and spinning them off for top prospects is that Cohen has the you-know-what to do just about anything right now in this early part of his ownership. And that, you know, there are a lot of people wondering, could this mean Pete Alonso's traded? Brandon Nimmo, Jeff McNeil, you know, tried and true Mets. And I know Pete was considered a core member. He was put into that letter that went out to the season ticket holders. But at this point, someone came to you, and I talked about this here, as you guys know, what a big package. You know, who's to say the Mets won't say no? The Mets were very bold. And as I looked at the first starts with Verlander and Scherzer, as I, I stepped away from the, the emotion, from the desire to want to win a championship, to seize the opportunity, I saw maybe what the Mets were seeing. Scherzer, not a terrible start, his first start in Texas, six innings, three runs. All those runs came at the first inning. But really, that's a six-inning, three-run start. That's a 4.50 ERA. Not something that you have to spend $43 million to get. Now, Verlander pitched a little bit better. He lost to the Yankees. Gave, you know, seven innings, seven hits, a couple of runs. Still, the command, the walks are a lot higher than you're used to. You know, Verlander is a guy that the advanced metrics indicated there was some sort of decline. Now, 
Guys like that, as they get later in their career, like when Pedro Martino was compromised, Pedro Martinez was compromised, Tom Glavin, they find ways to to make it work. I think though, when you look at it from the Mets' perspective, they were paying for the last vestiges of Hall of Fame out of these guys, and maybe they don't have it anymore. Maybe I'm wrong, but I at least saw from that perspective what they were doing, what they were talking about. And look, what's left is ugly. What's left is really ugly. You've got a rotation that, you know, it's basically the Tyler McGill and David Peterson show. You know, what is left out of those guys? Uh, Quintana and Kodai Senga are going to try to hold the fort down as the veterans. Uh, you know, there's a lot of magic eight ball out there, you know, when it comes to who's going to start, who's going to pitch well. And um, you're going to get a lot of what you saw this past week. Good teams like Baltimore on the road, the Mets are going to have a hard time beating them, especially when you start to sit whatever quality bats you have like Marte and Nimmo to nurse some injuries I mean you're really on most nights looking at three or four legitimate bats you got a lot of 4A up and down that lineup with the Stewarts and the Ortegas and guys like that so you know this could get ugly over the next few weeks I think the Mets are ticketed for 90 losses I think this very much looks like the 2020 Mets except instead of 60 games it'll be 162 and for the most part since that season that truncated season due to COVID the Mets have been searching for pitching, and we thought they solved it temporarily with Scherzer and Verlander. And when, De, you know, obviously DeGrom was part of that, Taiwan Walker, you know, Stroman was in the rotation. But throughout these last couple of years, two or three years, nobody has stepped up. No young arms have stepped up to actually show that there is internal candidates that are affordable so they don't have to go out and. You know, spend a bazillion dollars on a rotation. And I, I think that plays played a lot into their thinking with Scherzer and, and Verlander. Like, hey, we got some young guys we're developing. We need some more in the minor league system. Nothing's a guarantee just because you got, you know, five interesting arms. And then some, there'll be others that we're probably not talking about. Well, you know, you got to go for it at that point and put your toothpaste chips on the table and see what you can get. So I understand it. You know, with the Yankees kind of in a malaise, so to speak, where... You know, Hal is like, you know, we'll be in the muck and we'll be okay with it, which is a big difference from his father. A huge difference. When you add these things together, the uncertainty of Cohen, the Mets in retreat, we don't know what 2024 is going to bring. Rebuilds and prospects are always iffy. You just don't know. Mets fans have heard of Generation K and Butch Husky and you know, so on and so forth. Remember Brian Cole, the late Brian Cole passed away. He never even got a Got a chance. Uh, Escobar, Alex Escobar, who was traded for Robbie Alomar. He never turned into anything. Lasting's millage. I mean, look, for every right and Reyes that turned out great, you've got your Escobars, you've got your millages. Remember Philip Umber? You have uh, Justin Huber. I mean, there's so many names over the years. And just because the Mets build up this farm system doesn't mean there's any guarantee here. I mean, Ryan Thompson, Jeff Kent. I could go on and on. I mean, Kenton went on to have a great career outside of New York. And for the Yankees, look, you know, when you look at them, you know, Sam Militello and Wade Taylor, uh, Jeff Johnson, some young pitchers that they had, you know, during their, their bleak seasons. And, and then, of course, some of the worst years of New York baseball, 1991, 1992, the worst team money can buy, 1993 when things swung back towards the Yankees. But... You know, the Mets were on the, on, you know, losing well north of 100 games. You know, I have never in those years felt further away from 86 in a championship. I mean, there's been a couple of times where you wake up 
and you say to yourself, a title in competitive baseball looks so far away. 1993 and 92 fall into that category. And then, of course, there's a strike right after that. 2004, post-Scott Kazmir trade, I felt that way too. I really did. You know, maybe a little bit in 03 as things were bottoming out there after they tried to breathe some life with, again, imports in 2002. And then a little bit after Omar Manaya was fired and they brought in Sandy Alderson in 2010, you know, the, the failure and the frustration, the disappointment, how only four years earlier, the summer of love, 2006, was the, the city was about to be taken over. And I think you're in a similar spot now. I mean, the Yankees, and with, under Hal Steinbrenner's leadership, are poised to be knocked out and the Mets to become the darlings of this town. And I think the way it's going to have to happen is not through buying expensive toys. Oh, you're going to bring an import, so you're going to buy free agents. That's always going to be part of the Cohen game plan. A big market team always has to do that. But those guys are going to be brought into the fold of a good core of homegrown players and players that have been here. You know, who also may be homegrown, like Alonzo, like Nimmo, guys like that, maybe McNeil in that conversation. And I think that energy from the youth that could be infused, I mean, guys like Acuna and Gilbert and possibly one of these young arms, maybe they're, they're ready to help as early as next year. And because I always talk about the negativity and the yoke around the franchise, I think one of the ways to battle this, to offset the negativity... And it's going to get ugly and negative and bad the next six weeks. This is going to be some of the hardest times for us to watch the Mets because it's going to be empty stadiums. It's going to be extended spring training. It's going to be some bad baseball, some ugly games, some long games that you're going to wish, why am I watching this? But I think one of the ways to battle this negativity that has been hanging over this team for a long, long, long time and impacts this group and the players that come here, I don't care what anybody says is to bring young talent, babes in the woods, so to speak, who come here maybe with a chip on their shoulder and are maybe dumb enough not to care. And the fans, because they're young, because they're fresh, because they're new, because they don't have any other uniform on the back of their baseball card or the front of their baseball reference page, they're not going to have any prior agendas against them or expectations other than, hey, we hope this guy is really good you know, maybe they'll give them some rope to hang themselves here because Lindor's not going to get that. And I don't think Alonzo's going to get that anymore. And McNeil's not going to get that. And Marte's not going to get that. And Nimmo's not going to get that. They almost need to be part of, if those guys are around in the next couple of years, be part of a younger, almost like lowered expectations leads to fun. One of the most fun seasons that I've ever had in Mets history. And I always talk about 1999, but a couple of years early in 1997 was a fun summer because you went into that season thinking they were going to lose 90-plus games. Some thought they were the worst team in baseball, that they were going to lose 100 games. All of Generation K was on the shelf. Nobody knew who Rick Reed was. Nobody cared. And Bobby Valentine was known as Top Step Bobby, and some people didn't think he was a very good manager. And Bobby went out and nearly stole the wild card from the eventual uh, champion Marlins, and they... Spent some time in the playoffs, a good chunk of that summer in the playoffs, you know, exceeding expectations. So maybe that's where we're headed. But leading up to 1997, there was a period where you could not be less interested in baseball in this town. It was a hockey town with the Rangers. It was an NBA town with the Knicks. 
You had the, the Giants in 1990, 91, still riding off those Super Bowls. The 93 Giants were a pretty good team. They got blown out in the postseason, but, you know, they they had a good year. I know the Jets had some up and downs, but they had Boomer Esiason, and they were in the hunt, so to speak. They just had some devastating late-season losses during that period. So you were basically a town about the winter sports, and then the summer would come, and you would, yeah, you had baseball. Maybe you go to the ballpark for a giveaway or to spend the sunny nice day because that's what you do when you're growing up with baseball in your DNA, but you weren't into it. You know, the most exciting thing that would happen with these clubs is the back page drama. Vince Coleman throwing a firework, Brett Saber shooting a bleach. You know, who's George going to fire? You know, Harry Spira and all the illegal stuff going on with that. You know, Dave Winfield getting traded. You know, one bad Yankee player after another. Guys like Oscar Zokar and guys that you would never think would ever have a Yankees uniform on. And I, you know, those are my years in high school and in high school, you know, in Brooklyn where I went, we talked Knicks, we talked hockey, you know, there wasn't a lot of baseball talk, you know, really. And, you know, it was a mix of Mets fans and Yankees fans. It was probably closer to 50, 50 than maybe it would be today in another New York city high school where the Yankees over the last 30 years have built a dominant foundation of fans. But that's what it was. And are we headed towards that? You know, are we at least headed towards that for a couple of years? I could see it. I mean, I personally think, and I'm just using social media as a barometer, that the fans are a little burnt out from baseball in this town. Yankee fans are burnt out with the BS of this club. You know, a club that just six years ago, similar to the Mets, had some promising prospects like Judge and Gary Sanchez and Gleyber Torres and... Luis Severino, and, and nearly went to the World Series with a young core, with Joe Girardi as the manager, you know, there, and then obviously Aaron Boone after that. And they brought in some imports to kind of supplement that group, and they're tired of that group. The failures, the uh, unfulfilled expectations, the, the change in philosophy from Hal, from his father. And I just think Mets fans are burnt out. I mean, they really felt that, Cohen and his ownership was a yellow brick road. I warned you from day one, money solves a lot of problems, but it doesn't guarantee anything. It makes things more interesting, I can tell you that. And I think years and years of failure and disappointments, the second time in 30 years or so that they've had the highest payroll in baseball and the team has been a flop, I mean, that's a big scar, a big black mark against the franchise. I mean, think about it, though. In 1992, they had a $44 million payroll, which is basically what they're paying Max Scherzer. Think about how far we've come when I was a freshman in high school. Think about it. Seems like yesterday. I'm sure some of you remember where you were in that winter of 91 into 92 and say the same thing. So uh, it'll be interesting to see where we go with this baseball malaise. Um, You know, we're still going to be here at the Talking Mets podcast. And, um, you know, it'll be interesting to... uh, to see over the next couple of years. I think the big difference is the promise of a better tomorrow, the fact that you have Cohen spending. Not sure that'll motivate Hal Steinbrenner to be different, but I don't think either team will retreat, at least from the you know, on the Mets side. That that could happen, not on the Yankees side. I can't see that. But, you know, with Cohen doing what he's doing, it may embolden Hal to say, hey, if they can do it, so can I. And the interesting thing is the Yankees have the power position. In the city. The Mets have been trying to steal that position. And they failed every time. 06, 2015, 2000 if you want to go all the way back to the Subway Series. They failed every time. 
And now when you really have the Yankees and a soft underbelly exposed, this happens. And, you know, reboot, rebuild, whatever, year, two years, three years, whatever, how long it is, it will go down as another missed opportunity. But you can't manage an organization that way. That's fan talk. That's radio talk. That's what we do here. That's what they do on talk radio. That's for us to have fun. Can't run an organization like that. And a guy like Billy Epler, Mr. Data, he ain't looking at that stuff at all. Even Cohen, he ain't looking at that stuff at all. So, you know, that's where we're at. But we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to go in the time machine. You know, this is what we do when our teams are out of the race. Chris Donnelly wrote a great book, Road to Nowhere. Great book. You can check it out. Uh, He's also had other books, uh, a book about the 1985 baseball season and also about a great matchup in uh, the postseason back in 1995 between the Yankees and the Mariners. So Chris Donnelly, Road to Nowhere, the early 1990s collapse and rebuild of New York City baseball. He'll be joining us right after this. I'd like to think that Jeff Torborg plus Eddie Murray plus uh, Bobby Bonilla is a heck of a Christmas present to Mets fans, and uh, we're hoping a lot of them pack our ballpark next year. I'm going to have that smile on my face, and like I said again, it's going to be hard to knock it off. I know you're going to try, but I don't know if it's going to happen. They sent me to a great organization and a team that's got a great chance to get in the postseason. Everyone doesn't have to be good every night, but one of us will probably be pretty good that night, so... We're looking forward to a, a lot of special things happening. And it will be out of here. He waves and misses and another off-speed pitch. The Boo Birds are in full voice at Shea Stadium. Bobby Boo's here in New York so far. That's an exchange you don't like to see with anybody, nope. but it is certainly indicative of the kind of year it's been for this ball club. Well, 1992, if you're old enough to remember, was not a great one. For the New York Mets. In fact, the year after, there was a book written by longtime baseball writer Bob Clapish called The Worst Team Money Could Buy. Hey! Going back, Leverage. Don't fall. Oh, he dropped the ball. You could see trouble all the way on that. He was stumbling. hole you can dig deep enough that you like to hide in. No, that's... And a fly ball hit to right field. Ballfield can't see it. Oh, he dropped it too. Holy cow, what's coming off here? Now that's got to be an error. And a little pop-up, Espinosa, makes the catch. Hey, I don't believe it. It's a no-hitter, but four big runs scored. Double play ball. And that'll do it. Ball game is over on the 6-4-3 double play. Nothing across. And everybody coming over to congratulate Hawkins, even though he was a loser. Final score, the White Sox 4, the Yankees nothing. We're back and joining me, friend of the show, Chris Donnelly. I've been talking to Chris, oh, wow, well over 10 years. Came out with a great book during the old uh, New York baseball radio show days, a book about the uh, Yankees-Mariners series in the uh, 1995 postseason, baseball's greatest series. He also wrote a book that we've talked about on this show about the 85 New York baseball season with the Mets and the Yankees, both not making the playoffs but having great seasons. And now he's taken on a project that I got to be honest is a little bit different and unique talking about 
we if I always talk about the golden era of uh, New York baseball being 1997-2001, before that was maybe the worst era of New York baseball. <laughs> Road to nowhere about the early 1990s Mets and Yankees um, with a lot of chaos and obviously the Mets collapse and the Yankees before their ascension. So, Chris, welcome to the program. You were in Cooperstown last week for the festivities. How was it? I was. Well, first of all, Mike, uh, thanks for having me. I always appreciate you having me on to uh, talk about my stuff every time I'm pushing out a book. So thank you. Uh, but Cooper, Cooperstown was great. It, it's always great. And um, I mean, the place itself is just a really great place to visit and be at. And then when you just add in all the baseball folks that are there, uh, just all the people in general, it's I look forward to it every year. I was look, thinking about New York baseball and I was going back in history and I'm like, OK, you have. Some people are the golden era of New York baseball's Willie Mickey and the Duke, right? You got the 1950s, Yankee dynasties. Yankees take a step back in the 60s, and then the Mets win the 69 World Series after the Dodgers and Giants left. And the Mets were pretty competitive after that. And for a while, up until George Steinbrenner took over the team, they actually outdrew the, the Yankees. Then you had the late 70s Yankees dynasty. And when the Yankees are on the way down, the Mets come up. So you always had one team pretty much up until 1991 that was in contention and good. Then all of a sudden, 1991 happens. David Johnson's fired the year before. Daryl Strawberry leaves. The Yankees are a mess with Stump Merrill and and uh, Howie Spira and Dave Winfield. And I guess you must have been going through history and saying, wow, nobody's ever really written about the period from basically 91 to right around when your book from 1995 with the Yankees Mariners series came out, how chaotic it was over there for New York baseball. Yeah, it's a good point. And it's it's something that uh, when I was doing the last book, uh, the one about the 85 season, Doc Dying the Kid and Billy Brawl, um, one thing that struck me was how few books there are written about the New York Mets. Uh, there are a ton about the Yankees, I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens. And there really aren't that many about the Mets. And there are especially very few about the post-86 years. Um, and almost none about the nineties other than the worst team money could buy, which is a great book. And I, I use that as research for this one. And there's a couple of others. And it just sort of struck me as odd, um, because it's a really interesting time, not necessarily one that a lot of people would like to remember, but I'm sort of fascinated with this idea that by the early nineties, both teams have just sort of fallen off the map. And I, I wanted to talk about why that happened. I mean, it wasn't a coincidence. It wasn't, uh, there were some elements of bad luck, but there were reasons why all of this happened. And I wanted to explore that um, and and just talk about a time where both teams were pretty terrible and then how they slowly, I mean, it took the Mets a lot longer. We know that. And then how they slowly try to move on from that. Chris Donnelly, author of the book Road to Nowhere, which discusses the early 1990s baseball scene in New York. I remember, you know, here I am uh, entering high school in 1991, you know, started watching baseball in the mid 80s. Mets fan. I believe you're the Yankee. You're a Yankees fan. Uh, and you think as a young kid, it's never going to end. Doc, Daryl, great times. And then 1991 happens. But believe it or not, a lot of people forget that 1992 or the winter of 91 into 92, the Mets were the big spenders. The Mets were what the Yankees have become and the Mets have now become now and Bobby Bonilla and Eddie Murray and, and, you know, making the trade for Brett Saberhagen looking back, you know, that 1992 team may be a bit overrated when you start to dissect how the roster was built, but the Mets tried 
to buy themselves back into the postseason, give themselves a second life, and it didn't work. And then that's when things got bad. So it was interesting as you're going through that to go back in a time where you know the Yankees were clearly behind the Mets. And from a spending perspective, George Steinbrenner, who basically was the first one to jump into free agency, wasn't at the table. It was. It must have been a little bit different having grown up, having been around the Yankees and what happened in the 90s and turn of the century in the last 20-some-odd years since to see that kind of scenario. Yeah, one thing that really struck me when I was doing the research for the book is the Mets in before the 91 season had signed Vince Coleman as a free agent. And I didn't realize that that was almost literally something they never did. Um, I, I, I forget the exact number, but I think Coleman was something like the third or fourth free agent that they had signed um, since free they agency. They never got into free agency. Which, like they, they stayed away it, from it. Yeah, it's, it's shocking and it almost sounds impossible, but it's true. I, I mean, the, every other player they obtained was either a draft coming up through the system or somebody that they acquired from a trade and then re-signed uh, or did a contract extension as part of the deal. That was really shocking to me. And and. That was really sort of Frank Cashin's way of, of doing things. And then when Cashin leaves and Joe McElvain and Al Harrison take over, uh, they're doing things differently. And so in 91 and 92, they're signing big time free agents and they sign Bobby Bonilla and Eddie Murray. And then they make this trade for Brett Saberhagen, which was, I mean, all of these moves, as you point out, people thought the Mets were going to streamroll over everybody in 92 and in some ways, it made sense. In other ways, I think, as, as you allude to, it was maybe a little bit too much wishful thinking. Um, but I also don't think anybody could have predicted just how badly all of that. Um, I mean, I've said this before. It's amazing how almost every decision the Mets made in the early 90s failed. And some of that you can place blame on leadership and some of it is just plain dumb luck. But basically every single move they made from roughly 1989 through 1993 and 94 uh, failed. They, they got the bad end of the trades. They got the bad end of the free agent signings. And it's, it's um, astonishing that that happened. I mean, that's, and that's why you get a team in 93 that finishes with 59 wins. And that team, although, they don't have the fewest wins in a single season in Mets history. It's probably their worst season ever, both because of the record, because of who they had on their team and what they could have accomplished. And because of all the turmoil that was going on in the clubhouse. It made for great talk radio. Think about the extension of WFAN. And when you look at the Mets and the Yankees, the Mets in the winter of 92, the Yankees in the winter of 92 into 93, 91 into 92, 92 to 93. That's the explosion of free agency. I don't think fans in the modern era, like, we're in this era now. Free agency is a big thing. Trade deadline, 24-7, 365. But that was all new. You know, growing up as a young fan in the 80s of all sports, I mean, the NFL hadn't even hit that yet. That was still to come. And, and the NBA was still way, way to come. But free agency was not something that was common. Sure, the Yankees would sign Jack Clark and there would be some movement of free agents. But it was a very small group of teams that would partake in it. We know why collusion one, collusion two, collusion three. And then the following off season, I remember for the first time in December and in, in, in November, while you're in the middle of the NFL season, middle of the NBA season, Barry Bonds is a free agent. Greg Maddox is a free agent. And the Yankees don't even get those guys. They wound up getting Jimmy key and Wade Boggs, who everybody thought was washed up, but those became big free agent moves for the Yankees. And signal the difference and the failure of the Mets with Bonilla, who wasn't all that bad off. I mean, you look at Bonilla's numbers. He wasn't a horrible Met. He just, 
didn't fit personality, all that other side. Uh, everything the Mets, it was almost like they diverged and free agency played a big part of it. Yankees struck gold with their second and third tier choices, but it was weird. I never, it was the first time I was like, wow, this like this free agency thing was wild. Yeah. 92 and 93 is really a transitional time, largely for the Yankees. And to the point you make it, it's an interesting time in baseball because you have the expansion draft that November with the Marlins and the Rockies entering baseball, no team at the time was seemingly hurt more by that draft than the New York Yankees. They lost Charlie Hayes. They lost Carl Everett. They lost a couple of other guys Um, and losing Charlie Hayes. They were not expecting that to happen. And uh, inexplicably, they had no backup plan for that. Um, They just assumed he was going to be their third baseman. And the Yankees were somewhat, uh, it seems unbelievable to say this looking back, they were somewhat forced into signing Wade Boggs. Half of the team didn't wasn't really looking to do that. Gene Michael did not want Wade Boggs on the Yankees. It was the Tampa contingent of George's operation that wanted him. Boggs was a Tampa guy, and and he was coming off his worst season ever. Um, and then that's the draft where, as I point out in the book, Mariano Rivera was available. They didn't know he wasn't taken. Look at that, um, yeah. Yeah, which and the Yankee and I just made the point about the Mets being so unlucky. The Yankees were so lucky, and that's not to take credit away from. Gene Michael and Buck Showalter and the scouting department and all the decisions and moves they made. But along the way, luck basically went their way in every opportunity. And Rivera is a great example. But then in, in terms of free agency, I think people might forget that um, the Yankees made a substantial offer to Barry Bonds and he wanted nothing to do with New York. Um, they made a substantial offer to Greg Maddox and he instead went to the Braves. So they struck out left and right that offseason. And Jimmy Key was a consolation prize for them losing Greg Maddox. And he was, uh, I think, in an analytical age, his value probably would have been more appreciated with some of the data that we have now. However you feel about analytics, I think he would have been looked at differently. Sure. And he was just thought of as a guy they could put in the rotation, and he goes and he wins 18 games. I think he was fourth in Cy Young. He finishes second in 94. Um, it's And Miss it's it seems unbelievable to say this, but missing out on Bonds and Maddox um, worked out in the Yankees' favor. They actually ended up okay at the end of that. What was interesting about that time, I'm thinking back, was there was no worse time for baseball in this town. I always think of this town as a baseball town first, maybe NFL now, but I think baseball pretty much will take over even during NFL season if the Mets and Yankees are in the postseason. Maybe I'm dating myself maybe it's my generation and because these two teams were not good because of the bad press with Steinbrenner because of how bad things got with the Mets it almost you know the town you know the couple of both football teams were, were bad it became a Knicks town think about it. the Knicks kind of were the, the 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 and then the Rangers hockey and basketball became the the it sports they were growing sports the NBA was a growing sport uh, the Rangers with the 1940. And I'll tell you from 91, 92, that fall till, you know, when Pat Riley left and then, you know, the Rangers couldn't repeat as, as Stanley Cup champions. And then really going into the fall of 95 with your book about the Yankees and the Mariners, this was an NBA hockey town for about four years. And then the Yankees swung baseball back. I don't think that's ever happened before. And maybe, you know, look, the Mets and Yankees are in transitions now. We'll see. But that's an interesting part that I thought of as I was, you know, basically reading your book. No, and I think it's spot on, right? You had, as you said, the Knicks and the Rangers, and then uh, 
the Rangers had a great rivalry that was developing with the Devils, um, which became interesting, especially in 94. Um, and the Knicks were, not only were, were they good, they were fun to watch. Um, and, and the Mets and the Yankees just were not fun or entertaining. I mean, they were the opposite. The Mets had become really what the Yankees had been in the 80s and 90s. And the Yankees, um, they didn't have George in those early years, but they were still, they weren't good. There was still turmoil in the clubhouse. Uh, and then Buck comes in and sort of clears all that out. And really it's the the post-strike Yankees who, and I know, I know folks are going to roll their eyes when they hear this, but it is true. It is the post-strike Yankees that really brought people back to baseball in New York and to I a agree. degree. In, and to a degree in all of Major League Baseball, it was a combination of factors. It was the home runs. It was a it was an amazing group of young, talented players, the Nomars, A-Rod, Jeter, that, those kind of guys. But it was the Yankees being successful. And, and again, I know people don't necessarily like to hear this, but baseball tends to be in a better place when the Yankees are doing well, um, just because people love to hate the Yankees and they they love to go watch them play. Um, and really it's the, it's the 95 division series that has that huge impact. The Yankees hadn't been in the playoffs in 14 years. Um, and you had Don Mattingly, this, this maybe the most beloved New York sports icon ever finally getting to the postseason. And despite the way it, it ended, even after the strike, you have 57,000 people at Yankee stadium. And that, that is, I don't want to keep using this word, but that's a transitional moment for the sport and for New York sports, um, because then people are sort of back on board. And I think they kind of rediscovered what they loved about baseball. A hundred percent. I mean, I got to tell you, I'll even go back uh, a little, a couple of years earlier. I mean, I remember, you know, again, we're 16, 17, 18. We weren't talking baseball in high school. We and it was, I went to, you know, school in Brooklyn, plenty of Yankee fans, plenty of Mets fans, maybe at that time, more Mets fans than Yankee fans. But after 88, and even when 89 and 90 Mets being contention, late in the season, they had floundered out in September. You didn't have that juice. You didn't have that excitement. And there was the burden of expectations. The Yankees were just bad. Uh, even when they were in it, they were bad. They, you know, 88, even when they were somewhat in it. And as you look at that 93 team, the first season where Buck Showalter had that team, you know, after he had tried to clean things up the year before, that was a fun season, I remember, for Yankees fans. I remember knowing a lot of Yankees fans. And, you know, I was like, there's no way they're going to compete with the Blue Jays over time. There was no wild card yet. And they couldn't. The Blue Jays were in the midst of winning their second title. But you had Mike Stanley and you had Boggs with the Renaissance year. Don Mattingly was, you know, not pre-back Don Mattingly. He's starting to percolate a little bit, you know, becoming, you know, the version he was. Danny Tartable, who turned out to be the consolation prize for the Yankees when Benita signed with the Mets. And, you know, Jimmy Key and Jim Abbott with the, 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 you know, the no hitter. Um, it was a fun team. It was a fun summer. And then you're right. As you see that energy in 95, I remember watching game one, I believe, when Don Manley hit the home run against the Mariners. I was like, wow, we've missed this. We've missed this a lot. And I look, I'm rooting against the Yankees and the kid. I, I'm not lying to you here. I loved when, you know, Ken Griffey came around. Um, but there was a certain energy where, this matters. And I'll tell you, it really, for both teams, in my opinion, came back two years later when they played each other in the first Subway Series. And I feel like that's when the golden age of New York baseball started. Because now the Mets were showing, hey, we're back. We're for real. And we had that four-year run that really culminated in the Subway Series. So I think that 93 Yankees team 
in a lot of ways was the first step towards baseball becoming more relevant again in New York after it had been dead really for a couple of years. Yeah, a couple of things on that, Mike, which is uh, and, and the, the golden era that you talk about will be covered. Uh, there's a book that will be out that basically picks up where this one leaves off. I'm working on You're that. already way ahead of me. Wow. you you. <laughs> I'm giving away all your secrets here, man. That's all right. That's all right. Everyone, everyone knows the ending, but it's all hey, right. Hey, listen, you can always call me. I know you recalled about this. You can always call. I, can, I got fond <laughs> memories of those years. I'll tell but you. That, that one will be out in a couple of years. But um, the, the Mets, I think, were in some ways a victim of their own success uh, or ultimately lack of it. Because in 86, it was such a, a magical season. And people were expecting a dynasty that never happened. And so despite the fact that they were, I mean, they went to the NLCS in 88 and they were one game from the World Series. And despite the fact that they were in it in 89 and 90, I think the fact that they never became what, what people probably unfairly expected of them to become didn't help uh, keep attention and focus on them as the season went along, as you got to September and October. Uh, and and with the Yankees, that 93 team is largely forgotten, uh, except for the diehard fans. And part of that is because you had the 94 team that everybody wonders what would have happened without the strike. Then you have the 95 and then you have the dynasty teams. The 93 team, um, it was as a fan, it was the first time I'd ever watched a successful Yankees team. So that made it fun. But they were also really easy to root for and really fun to watch. And they were um, they were. Gene Michael had really reshaped the team in a in a Moneyball kind of way. Again, I'm not going to say the Yankees were the creator of Moneyball; they were not. But Gene Michael understood that on base percentage was probably the most important thing that you want to look at for a player, and he also understood, and so did Buck Showalter, the necessity of having people in the clubhouse who are focused on winning. And so they cleared out the guys like Mel Hall, um, who were not really all about that. And in '93, they. I don't think people thought they were going to be that good. I think they thought they were going to be better than 76 and 86 that they were in 92. Um, and then to have them for a span of nine weeks from July to about the middle of September consistently be within three games of the Blue Jays. And in fact, put a scare them. in them. Put a scare it, in they, them. They did. And, and they tied them first place 18 different times without holding first place themselves, which is, I believe, still a major league record. They really made an amazing run. Um, and it was, it was fun to watch them in a way that had, they hadn't been even in the eighties when they were having good years um, because the guys were so likable. And because for the large part, even though George was back, there was very little drama that year. And when you talk about Moneyball guys and guys that build the culture or build the foundation to the, the renaissance of New York baseball, which you're right, Mets fans may not want to hear it. It starts with the 95 Yankees. There's always those guys that are part of the transition. They're part of the process and they're important, but they're not there for the party. And for the Yankees, there are guys like Mike Stanley, yep. Deion James, Mike Gallego, Randy Lavardi, who, uh, who they didn't want to lose that. I remember that was a big loss. I believe if not, it was free agency, if I'm not mistaken. So you hear about the Laritzes, and obviously Mattingly is always known as what if, but there was a lot of what you call moneyball guys, guys who, unless you were reading Bill James back in 1993, Deion James stinks. Who the hell is Mike Stanley? Mike Gallego, you know, scrub middle infielder from Oakland. These are good players that, as you look at now, they would be applauded as moves made. 
by Stick Michael if they if this was a Twitter error back in 1993. Yeah, Mike Stanley's a great example of that. I and mean, I write in the book how when he was signed before the 92 season, it basically merited like one, maybe two lines in the New York Times. The Yankees have signed backup catcher Mike Stanley. He hit something like 248 with a couple of home runs last year. And that's all it was. And uh, he comes to the Yankees and he, he he hit for average. He walked. He hit with power. I mean, you could probably argue that in 93 and 94 and to some degree 95, Mike Stanley was the best all-around offensive catcher in the American League. Um, and then he he it, it does not is not welcomed back in 96 because the Yankees moved to a more defensive-minded uh, position as it, as it comes to catcher. They trade for him uh, in 97 towards a stretch run. He's on the 97 team that doesn't win the championship either. So Mike Stanley is a guy who was there for the best parts of it, except the, the championships. Um, and then there are other guys, as you point out, Deion James, who, who had these really fantastic seasons in New York. Mike Gallego was there because he knew how to win. He was a solid middle infielder. He got on base and he knew how to win. And it was little acquisitions like that that really changed not just the wins and losses, but the clubhouse culture in the Yankees. What did you, anything interesting you learned? You know, look, we, we grew up watching these teams. You know, it's not like we're going back in the history books and writing, writing about the, the, the 61 Yankees. You know, you lived through it. You might have been young, but you lived through it. I lived through it. Now, our, our intelligence about the game, our exposure to information and knowledge was much more limited than today. I'm, I'm actually jealous of how many pieces of information people who were fans today I mean, I, I I didn't even have cable. I didn't have cable till September of 1992. I was right. I was 16, going on seven, you know, 17 there. Right. Come on, you know. But that was the world we lived in. It was not a digital age. It was a radio age. It was a newspaper age. Did you learn something about that era with these two teams that maybe surprised you? Because you know, even though you lived it, you weren't thinking of it back then. Uh, that that is a great question. Um, I think. One thing I, so what's fun is now that you have baseballreference.com is to be able to go back and track guys through a season, right? Cause as you point out, we used to just have baseball cards and uh, sure. my, my mother, one year for Christmas, I remember bought me well, the baseball encyclopedia, which is like, I have the, and, and it was outdated. You right. couldn't get every year. So my encyclopedia ended in 1989. So anything from 1990, right. whatever. Yeah. Right. And it, it was so bad. I mean, it took you four hours to thumb through the pages to find, sure. even, well, even if it was in alphabetical order, it still took you that long. So to be able to go back and look through their guys' seasons as they progressed and to see if the final numbers really told the story of how great their seasons were. Uh, and I say that specifically to, uh, as a point of Don Mattingly. So no secret. I'm a, I was a Don Mattingly fan. That's, I mean, that's his Jersey right there. <laughs> I'm looking at it right now. I hear yeah. you. So, um, and look, post back injury, he was not the same player he was in the eighties. There's no secret about that. And and he caught a lot of flack in his last season for how unproductive he was. And again, by, uh, I think analytics would probably not be helpful to his case now, depending on which one you use. Cause there are some that, Strongly support us all of fame case and others that don't. But my point is going back and looking, especially at his 93 season and looking about his, at his performance from June, July, and August. If it hadn't been for a September where he really slumped badly 
it's possible that in a season where he missed a month from injury, he would have hit 20 home runs. He would have driven driven in over hundred RBIs and he would have hit over 300. And I mean, those are outstanding numbers. And, and so he was still a productive player. He was Mark Grace. At that right. point in his career, right. he became Mark Grace, which is a right. really solid Good player first to be. baseman. Good <laughs> right. player to be. Right. Not Don Manningly. The power was the big difference in Don right. Manningly. He wasn't game. hitting the eight home, home runs in eight consecutive games. He wasn't hitting 35. Home runs. He wasn't batting 353. And that's okay because you don't necessarily expect that out of players. Um, but to see that he was still putting up good productive numbers, and, and I talk about this in the book, that the stretch he had – in that season was really his best one um, of the nineties and going back and doing that for a lot of guys. I, I think of somebody like Anthony young who had the losing streak. Uh, for those who don't know, Anthony young set the record between 92 and 93 for the most consecutive loss. 27 in a row. He wins a start. A I think his first start in 1992, he wins in St. Louis and then he doesn't win for a year and a half until right. there's some walk-off. It was actually on Twitter the other day. There was some walk-off against Miami. Uh, him coming out of the bullpen, you know, that he finally breaks the streak. He was going to get the loss in that game, actually, and the Mets uh, tied it and then won it in the bottom of the ninth. When you look at Anthony Young's number, if you just look at his win-loss with the Mets, which I believe is 5-35, and uh, it betrays a guy who pitched really well with the Mets. His numbers are really, really good, Uh, especially if you look at his no decisions, and obviously his wins, but his no decisions. Anthony Young was a really good pitcher who encountered a tremendous amount of bad luck. And you wouldn't know that necessarily by looking at the bottom line, 92 and 93 stats. But if you go through the individual game logs and you see how well he performed and how, uh, as I said, ridiculously unlucky he was in terms of run support, in terms of one hit that caused him a loss in a game where he strikes out six or seven guys. um, It's, it, I think people come to realize uh, that he gets a, a bum rap. Um, but going through all of that, admittedly, I wasn't really certain how badly or well he may have pitched at that time. And the ability to do something like a baseball reference um, allows me to see that, allows anyone to see that. Two guys that I think are underrated that don't necessarily get loved. They were big contract guys, but their numbers offensive. They're really good. Danny Tartable had a good career as a Yankee. I know it ended badly uh, when they traded him. Was it 95? They traded 95. him for, yeah, for Ruben Sierra. Big deal. Ruben Sierra helped the, the – it was interesting. Ruben Sierra helps the Yankees 95. Cecil Fielder helps the Yankees in 96. Yeah. It's ironic how that connection – and Bobby Bonilla was a good offensive player on a bad team. And I always remember rock bottom as a Mets fan. It was I was at a ball game in 93. I was lucky enough back then. My dad used to get us – occasionally a, a business associate would get him uh, get us tickets behind the visiting dugout. And I don't remember it was the Cubs or who they were playing, but Benia had struck out a couple of times that night. And this guy was just screaming at him behind the Mets dugout and in a nasty way. And it was a nasty, negative environment. Understandably. So the whole season was nasty and negative in 93. And uh, you just look at that and you're like, this, this, this stinks. Now, again, you had your winter sports to get you through. So you had your thing. But it just stinks. And you look at the Yankees with Tartable, not beloved, but those free agent signings from an analytics perspective, good on base for for Tartable, power. Uh, maybe he wasn't a great fielder, but he was a, a run creator. Yeah. Overlooked, really. Tartable's overlooked. So is Bonilla a little bit. 
Bonilla had some of his best years as a major leaguer with the Mets. I, I believe he said his career high in home runs with the 93 team. I think it was yep. 30 home runs in 87. And I was at the game when Rob Dibble ripped off the shirt. I think that was 92 when he had a game winning home run. I still remember Dibble coming back to the dugout. I was sitting by the dugout ripping off his shirt and everything like that. Bonilla put up great numbers. He, he, but there's a couple of reasons why his legacy is what it is. Putting aside Bobby Bonilla day, because that's not this era of the Mets. Yep. That's, Late night. I'll get into that in the next book. But first of all, he got off to a terrible start, specifically at at home at Shea Stadium. Mm -hmm. And that, and so he starts to hear the booze and it gets recommended to him by the hitting coach that he might want to consider earplugs. Now, this, what they, the story as they tell it is it was really not to drown out booze. It was to drown out all the noise at Shea Stadium, all the crowd noise, the planes, all of it. Um, But whether that's true or not, nobody believed that it was true. They all believed it was to drown out the booze. And then you have stories of him calling the press box to complain about an error that he was given and the in- encounters he had with reporters, with Bob Clappish and the 94 R. McFarland. And so all of that, plus how terrible the team was, makes Bonilla really the face of that era, fairly or unfairly. Sure. Just sure. And so he gets saddled with that. And then Danny Tartable. Tartle had 31 home runs in 1993. Uh, he drew a ton of walks, yeah, drove in over 100 RBIs, had a great season in 93, had a great one in 94. But in 95, he just sort of completely falls uh, falls off. It's only six home runs. And the Yankees were really bad for the first few months of 1995. Uh, they were a last-place team. They were under 500. And Tartable was sort of the poster boy for that because he was performing so poorly and there were the questions about whether he was really injured when he was saying he was, and it was just time for him to go. And he had a great year in 96 with the White Sox. So there was still gas in the tank, but his time in New York was just over. And it's uh, that's really how he's remembered is for that last part of it. But as you mentioned, look, the, the Mets signed Benia and, the Yankees haven't signed anybody that offseason. And I think Gene Michael felt that George, even though he wasn't allowed to have any say in the operations of the team, it was sort of like, what would George do? And so Tartable's the guy who's left, the big slugger who's left. So they sign Tartable, somebody they had expressed no interest in until Bonilla signed with the Mets. And it, it sets off this chain reaction of a couple things. Kevin Moss is now no longer the Yankees DH, right? The guy who came up with a big splash in 1990. His career, he lasts two more years with the Yankees, but his career with the Yankees is pretty much done. And, and Moss told me that. He's like, I, I had no idea when the Yankees signed Tartable. That would basically be the end of my career as a Yankee. But then you have Tartable trading for Sierra, trading for Fielder. The Yankees do not make the playoffs in 95 without Ruben Sierra. He had a phenomenal two. And he had a good series against the Mariners, yeah. Good series against the Mariners. And then he falls off in 96 and has some incidents with Joe Torre. The Yankees trade him to Cecil Fielder. I don't think people remember how good Cecil Fielder was in 1996, both in August and September. They do not win the world. You, you can say this unequivocally. They do not win the World Series without him. And if not John Wetland, he easily could have been named the MVP um, of the World Series. And then, of course, he falls off in 97, so people don't necessarily remember right. him. 
uh, the best of ways either. But Yankees always had guys, veterans, whether it be Glenn Allen Hill, even Jose Canseco, Jose Vizcaino would come in. I call it the Yankee bump with the pinstripes. Not so much happening anymore, but for a while there, it's like Alfonso right. Soriano returned a few years ago. And all of a sudden, he's Alfonso Soriano again. If yep. Bonilla, in my experience at Shea Stadium, watching the screaming at Bonilla for the strikeout was the low point in that era for the Mets. For you as a Yankees fan, is it Andy Hawkins losing a no-hitter? Is it the failure of Sam Militello? Is it, you know, um, Mel Hall? You know, is it Ke- you, you spoke to Kevin Moss. Is it Steve Sachs? Like, is there an epitome of that bad time before Buck Showalter comes in, cleans it up, and, you know, the 93 happens? Is there a player or, or something that's the epitome of that for you? So I would, I would call it a tie between an on-the-field and off-the-field event. So the on-the-field is Hawkins pitching a no-hitter and losing. Um, which is my first memory as a Yankee fan. I went to my first game in 88 and I, I remember some pieces of it, but the first game I really truly remember watching on TV was that July 1st, 1990 losing no hitter. Um, and, and really it, the fact that they were shut out, the fact that they were almost no hit, the fact that they made three errors, I think it all sums up nicely just what that 90, 1990 team was all about. And then the off the field incident is. August 15th, 1991, when Don Mattingly is benched for having his hair too sure. long. It's, it's so ridiculous. I know. Uh, and look, look, the Yankees have their rules. Agree with them or not, those are the rules. He was told to cut his hair. He didn't. He got benched. But he was the team captain at that time. He was really the only reason that a lot of people were coming to the ballpark, and I can prove that in a minute. Um, and so for them to bench him over that, it just seemed so petty and unnecessary. Um, and I, it explains a lot about the clubhouse atmosphere and the feeling. And ultimately, it was really what led to Stump Merrill's uh, downfall. I think people were sort of tiring of Stump, even though the Yankees were actually surprisingly good in the first half in 91. But they felt he was sort of unprepared. He was a great minor league manager, unprepared to be a major league manager. The Mattingly incident happens, and that was really the final nail in the coffin for him. And my anecdote for that is that, as I said, I was a huge Don Mattingly fan. I had asked my mother if we could go to a Yankees game that year. I said, I just want to go see Don Mattingly. And it was the day he gets benched. That game. We get to the stadium. He is not in the lineup. We don't know why. This is 1991, so there's no way to find out why. We were driving home from the game. I fell asleep in the car. We wait, I get home, wake up, and my brother tells me that he's, he was benched for not cutting his hair. I thought he was busting my chops. I thought he was making a joke about yeah. me. And I didn't believe it because it wasn't believable. It was so ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but I think, I think that sums up the early 90s. Those two on and off the field mm-hmm. events uh, sum them up perfectly. Did you have any interesting conversations with former members of either team or anything that stands out to you while you did the research for this book? I think a couple things stand out to me. Uh, one is, so not a lot of Mets want to talk about this era, as you might understand. Sure. But the ones I was able to talk to, uh, they a few of them made comments about how, geez, nobody ever wants to talk about this stuff. They always want to talk about 86 or something else, but they don't really ask about my time in New York if I was there from 90 to 93 or whatever. Um, I, was spe- I remember speaking with Jeff Innes, 
shortly before he passed away, I, I didn't know he was sick at the time we, we were talking uh, and he died a few months later. And he actually said, man, this, I don't get to talk about this a lot. And I wish, I wish I did. I wish I spoke about it more often. I really liked being a Met. Um, so I, I think there was, despite how chaotic it was, I think the guys who were with the Mets who were able to have some good years, right. Who were there in the late eighties um, or, or 1990. I think they wished people asked them about that era more often. Another thing that surprised me was the Yankees were chaotic and a lot of people were unhappy and it was no secret at the time how unhappy people were. Guys talked about it in the press, but when you talk to those guys now, they they'll admit to you, yeah, we were not a good team, but they, they just, they do nothing but smile about being a Yankee. Yeah. The the history, the the stadium. How bad it was. I mean, you wonder if that, you know, it's with the new stadium and with how it's been changed. You wonder if that's the same way now. Because I don't, I, you're a Yankees fan. I mean, forget the new state. It's not really a new stadium anymore. It's been around, what, 14, 15 years right. now. But um, it may not hold that same. The pinstripes, I don't know. Maybe it's been uh, over oversaturated of pinstripe uh, mania, right? I'm sure there's still something to the to the aura and the feeling. And, I mean, you you I think for people who are coming up now who grew up in an age where they watched Jeter and Rivera, and Posada and Bernie Williams, there's something to them saying they played here and now I'm playing here. Well, not Bernie, but the other guys, but it's not, it is not the same place. And look, this is going to sound like an old man yells at cloud kind of thing, right? but <laughs> it, it isn't, it's, it's a different, it's a look, I games are fine there at that stadium, but it's, it's not, there's just a different feeling than there was from the old Absolutely. stadium. It's as, a, nice- as a team going in there as a Mets fan, watching the subway series beating the Yankees in Yankee stadium was special. Right. Now that's subway series saturation. That's a whole nother thing. The other night, you know, Mets win nine, three. It's fun. It's not the same, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, it's look, it's a nicer experience at this Yankee stadium simply because of the way it's set up and it's not a 75 year old stadium and it's you know, the seats aren't this big. And, um, there is something about the old place and the noise and the way it was set up and the feeling that, yes, even though it is not the exact same setup as the 1920s and 1930s, it is still the same spot and place where all this previous history happened. Ruth, Gehrig, DiMaggio, Barramantle. It all happened here. That's somewhat gone in the, in the new place. And the way that they have it set up, I know they're not doing it delivery, but it almost feels like they're hiding the monuments and the numbers. Trying to move forward. Yeah. Yeah, No place. It was all out in the open and you could see it and it was great. So I think it is a different feeling. And yeah, part of that might be the stadium because you talk to guys from that era. I I remember talking to Wade Taylor, who was a pitcher for the 91 Yankees. And he talks about making his debut and sort of being like, I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe I'm sitting on standing on the mound and I can see the train going by in right field. So I'm sure that's part of it in some way. To wrap up here, you know, 100% I agree. 94, 95, the Yankees run, Yankees post-strike. Big part of getting baseball back in New York, getting that energy. And then, like I said, the in, you know the Subway Series, the 97, the first Subway Series. Baseball has been front and center in this town now. Oh, you're looking at 25, 26 years. Generation of fans in our age group, maybe a little bit younger. 
But now you have the Mets in this weird time with Steve Cohen and what's been going on with the trade deadline. I know Yankees fans are not happy with Hal Steinbrenner. They and there's this weird malaise I would call with the Yankees. I don't know. Could we be headed for that? I don't see us heading for what we saw 1990 to 1995 because both owners have a lot of money and could at least spend money to keep the interest going. But look, the Rangers are a team on the rise. Whether you like Dolan or not, the Knicks are a team improving. The Jets have Aaron Rodgers. Uh, you know, maybe the Giants have something with Daniel Jones and Saquon, Shaquan Barkley. Um, who knows? Could we be heading for that? I'm curious your thoughts. I don't think so. But I think there could be some baseball malaise going on here, or or maybe we're time for baseball hiber- hibernation. I think well, a couple of things on that, Mike, which is I think what you're seeing with the Mets now is very similar to what you saw with them in the early 90s in terms of they're making all these big moves and through some fault of their own and through some just sheer bad luck, it's not working out. Uh, I think one difference here is that Cohen, it seems to be fully acknowledging, hey, we gave it a shot, and the way it's going right now is not working. We're going to re- regroup and try something else. That that seems to be what uh, they're looking at right now, and that wasn't necessarily the way they were thinking in 91 or 92. I think they were sort of thinking they would just bear down and, and try and figure it out, and it didn't happen, and it took a long time. Cohen doesn't seem to be going that route, so I don't think the Mets will completely bottom out unless some really unfortunate circumstances happen. The Yankees, look, they might still make the the postseason this year. I I don't think they're a good enough team to win the World Series, but once you get in the playoffs, it's a crapshoot anyway, as everyone likes to say. But I think this is more similar to the late 60s era where the team suddenly got really old and no one was ready for that overnight. Um, that their stars, I'm not comparing guys now to Mantle and Ford and Barra, but the, look, they're, they have guys on this team who just aren't performing anymore. And I don't think they were prepared for that. So I don't think it's like the 80s and 90s where it was George's mania and trading everybody and get rid of all the prospects that resulted in it. And because it's not that, I don't think they will ultimately fall to the depths of despair that they were in 90 and 91. But that said, we, we are sort of, we might be on the cusp of a year or two where baseball is just, everybody's going to have hope in April and May, yep. and then they, they'll deal with it in the summer because there's nothing else to watch. And then, hey, NFL training camp, it's time for for football, it's time right. for the NBA training camps. Interesting. Right. You know, another one last thing, but I know you got to run. When you look back at baseball reference and you look at some of the those those numbers of the offensive numbers, the pitching numbers, analytically there are so many pitchers jeff Venis, god rest his soul one of them great season walk like two batters per nine struck out two batters per nine like by today's standards like oh my god how is he on a big league roster even the guys like a brett saberhagen a jimmy key not big strikeout numbers god people out it's amazing how the game has changed and i'm not going to get into better game the game is what it is it's baseball and even with the pitch clock it's funny. I haven't seen a change necessarily in how we assess players. Strikeouts are still the strikeouts are high. Walk rates are still crazy. Walk rates. We still look for on-base percentage and power. But it's interesting how different. And I, I'm wondering, I'm sure you saw that too as you went through your research. Yeah, so I'll just a, a quick anecdote, which is actually separate from the book. But recently it was the, 
I believe, 35th anniversary of Tommy John committing three errors on one play. Sure. I saw the video a lot. And <laughs> find video of Tommy John pitching in the 80s and him throwing 70 miles an hour and wondering how in the hell this guy not only was still a pitcher, but is still getting people out. And that is simply not possible in today's game. He wouldn't even be given the opportunity to do that. And and so, yeah, you look at guys who are pitching to, and I know we don't necessarily measure players by these stats anymore, but you look at guys who are pitching to five ERAs and they are the mainstays of the Yankees rotation and George is giving them two-year multi-million dollar. Sure, Melito Perez, Andy Hawkins, you know, when you go into errors that are not successful, there's some there's some cool peak names and players that you, appreciate and wish they were there for the good times, but there's a lot of names you go, wow. Oof, that's yeah, a tough one. yeah. It's just, it, look, it was, a, it's a different game now than it was back then. But if you go back and look at the numbers, you would definitely go, wow. <laughs> this is these kind of thing. Oscar Azokar walked two times in 1990. He had over, he had 250 at bats and he walked twice. And there was actually a point in the season where his, on base percentage was lower than his batting average, which is a near impossibility to accomplish, but he actually did it. And there is no way a player like that would be in major league baseball in this type of game. It, it He would not make it. It wouldn't be allowed to happen. You want to have some fun. If you're a Yankees fan or New York baseball fan, this is a New York baseball segment. You look at that 1990 Yankee roster on baseball reference. You see some names you're like, wow, he played for the Yankees. It's amazing. <laughs> For every Kevin Moss, there's an Oscar Zokar, yep. Sam Militello, Wade Taylor. You mentioned Wade Taylor, um, guys like that. Hey, Chris, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. I can't wait for the next one, the golden era of of, uh, of New York baseball for me, 1997 to 2001. So be well and uh, let's do it again, my friend. All right. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. All Thanks right. for having me. And that's Chris Donnelly. We'll be back with more right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five, because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, we're back. Final thoughts. I thought Chris Donnelly and I had a great conversation going down memory lane. And, you know, he's right. We really don't talk a lot about that period post-1986, 87, 88. You know, you maybe touch a little bit into the worst team money could buy. Everybody remembers Bob's book, Bob Klappish of... uh, the great columnist of the record. He's been on this show a number of times. But other than that book, you really don't talk a lot about Generation K. You know, we had Bill Pulsifer on just recently or, you know, Alex Ochoa or some of the guys that came up during that period because the Mets were in a rebuild during that time. And the Yankees tried to rebuild through free agency, missed out on the two biggest fish of all back then, Maddox and Bonds, who could have really remade the Yankees in a big way. And the secondary guys, you know, Wade Boggs, who they weren't sure what was left of him, Jimmy Key, Danny Tartable, who was the Bobby Bonilla consolation prize, you know, turned out to to be a bridge in some ways. You know, Jimmy Key was there as well as Boggs for the championship team in 96. But 
They were guys that came here, embraced New York, embraced the challenge. I mean, look, the Yankees had a yoke around their neck back then, too. The failures, the money spending, George, haven't had one since 77. The stadium stinks. The area is unsafe. I mean, they had as many challenges. You know, the pinstripes and what they are today and what George built by leveraging those pinstripes and that championship in 1996 to become a cash cow bohemoth. Give him a ton of credit. The Yankees were not. You know, I think they were one of the first teams, like Jerry Jones did with the Dallas Cowboys, where they negotiated their own Adidas deal, I think, to bring in more revenue. I mean, the Yankees were, from a revenue perspective, blowing away and breaking all the rules. They took that brand, they took that championship, and they leveraged it. And they became great. And they won four titles in five years. You know, And it took a special team like the Mets to even sniff beating them. It took Piazza, a special player, a guy that nobody would have thought. We've had him on this show, Mike, um, that would come here. A, a, a guy that was having a great career out in California. Yeah, he was an East Coast guy. And that probably played into him understanding the market, even though he was all California back then, all L.A., Back then, a special guy coming here, embracing what this was all about, about the being the number two team in town. And he and Al Leiter and Robin Ventura and Alfonso and, and some of the veterans that were around them, the old roots, the zeals, guys like that, you know, almost climbed the mountaintop and beat and almost knocked off a dynasty a year before the Arizona Diamondbacks actually knocked off the dynasty and beat the best closer in the history of baseball. And that, to me, 1997, it starts It's a golden age of New York baseball. It really, to me, it is. For the rest of my life, that's when I fell back in love with baseball. Because I will tell you, I was, and I am not joking about this, I was out of the baseball game throughout most of my high school years after the worst team money could buy. Completely out of it. It was all about the Knicks. was all about the Knicks winning a championship. And nothing else mattered for me personally. There were a lot of guys that were into the Rangers. The Rangers became a big deal. You know, where I grew up in Bensoners, Brooklyn, a lot of Rangers fans, a lot of hockey fans, and even Islanders fans too that were still had grown up during the dynasty years or their parents had grown up during the dynasty years. But that was more Long Island. I was in, I was in Brooklyn. And, of course, football is football. Football was, was, was emerging as this behemoth. Like that was like, you know, we were growing up during a time in the early 90s, where because of media, not social media, media, these sports like football were growing and the NBA was coming into its own and the Dream Team and the Knicks and the Bulls and the Rangers and the Devils and, and all the things that were in front of us. And, and baseball in this town, at least, was behind. They were behind in marketing. They were behind because they had two teams that were in the doldrums. And then 1995 comes along and the Yankees make this wild card run under Buck. And they nearly beat the Mariners. And that stadium was rocking. And I remember when Don Mattingly hit that home run, I remember listening to it on the radio. I remember watching those games, those Yankee Stadium games against the Mariners and those games in Seattle. And I said, this is what it's about. Like, it brought me back. It was an energy I had not heard in a long time. You know, as a young Mets fan, 86, 87, 88, I was, you know, 9, 10, 11 years old. You don't understand the game like you do when you're 18 years old. And if it was for the first time I said, this is what it's about. And I will tell you, as a hardened Mets fan who now tries to do this show and tries to do it in a way uh, where I'm, I don't want to be a fanboy. I want to be as, as down the middle, you know, my passion for the Mets shows. I think that's important, but I want to be down the middle. I fell back in love with baseball, not because of Generation K, 
not because of Bobby Valentine or Mike, you know, Mike Piazza took us to another level as Mets fans. It was because of the 1995 Yankees. And then 96 comes along and the Mets have some hope. And obviously they were a little bit away. They were a year away. But then 97 came along and specifically that series against the Yankees. I remember being so fired up, so intense. And I said, this is what postseason baseball is all about. I want to be part of that. And I think the Mets did too. And during those years, 97 to 2001, specifically in my opinion, it was a great tune-up for bigger and better things. The Mets always had to have that tune-up. The Yankees always had to have that tune-up. Usually it was about June they would do it. You know, Back then they would do it within a, a month. You know, Over a couple of weeks you would do the three at Yankee Stadium, the three at Shea at that time. And I felt it made them better. You know, it was intense. There was always things going on, drama. Joe Torre hated it. I think the Mets embraced it a little bit better than the Yankees. But that's how I got back into baseball. And I think right now, we need something to get us back. We thought it was last year's Mets team. We thought it was Cohen's wallet. Maybe there was some juice we thought last year with the Subway Series. But it it still didn't feel right. And now the hope is with some of these young players, with this new philosophy with the Mets, and, and who knows what the Yankees do. You know, we, it's almost like you want it again. Like, how do you, re, how do you recapture 97? And is this the era, a repeated era? You know, history always repeats itself. Are we living through another, you know, 1992, 93? We'll see. I don't think it'll be as bad, but we'll see. The next six weeks will feel awful like 92 will feel awfully lot like 93. But I'm not sure that the owner wants to sit back as he tries to build an environment around that ballpark, trying to, as I know personally, that he wants to bring in bigger uh, sponsors and bigger money components to this ballpark so that he can have the kind of revenues and the kind of environment that the Yankees have or have established. So it'll be interesting. So I thought this was a fun segment Look, one of the things we're going to do the rest of the year is try to look at some books, try to look at some history, try to, you know, we'll talk about the prospects. I will, you know, one of the things I'd like to do in the next couple of weeks is start looking at some players and assessing, you know, who's a solution, who's not going forward. You know, there's some guys on this team that you have to start to question, like a Jeff McNeil, like a Brett Baby. You know, is Marte done? You know, what is Nimmo's future here? Pete Alonzo. I mean, everybody's got a big question mark over their head. Nothing is off the table right now. I think after this past week, after what you saw with the kind of money that Cohen ate with Scherzer and Verlander, nothing is off the table. And that's exciting, but that's scary and unsettling because you're emotionally attached to certain players. And the unknown is a scary thing. So it'll be interesting to see where we go. All right. I want to thank everybody for joining us today. I want to thank Chris Donnelly for stopping by. Check out his book, Road to Nowhere. Great read. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet, at Mike Silva Media. And you can try to Apple podcast, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. And you can get me on Instagram, no G. And, of course, we always want to thank our good friends over at the Fan Sided Podcasting Network. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast next week. Till then, take care, everybody. Peace.